the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Good evening. My name is Julie Kelly. I am here filling in for my friend, Dan Proft, and I'm an occasional guest on his show in the Chicago area, and I'm honored to be trying to fill his shoes, his microphone, so to speak. Um, I am a senior contributor for American Greatness, amgreatness.com, where you could find most of my work. And we have so much news to talk about this week, as usual. Uh, It is a week away from Christmas, which is hard to imagine, but it is. Very few people are in the Christmas spirit, unfortunately. And we have our uh, fellow Grinches, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is, again, trying to steal the joy from our celebrations this year. And uh, we'll get into that a little bit. But there's so much news happening. I have some great guests, friends of mine, actually, who are going to be joining us over the next few hours. I have Lee Smith, the great journalist, uh, investigative journalist, who has written two books. And we can talk a little bit about uh, the new Peter Strzok, Lisa Page text that came out this week, more revelations related to the FBI's corrupt investigation into the Trump campaign and Donald Trump himself. We'll talk about that in a bit. We also will be talking with Representative Andy Biggs of Arizona and what's happening in that state related to both the election and lockdowns. Representative Biggs has been an outspoken opponent of lockdowns. Also, he has written a letter to the president asking him to veto the omnibus bill, uh, adding more debt (laughs) that we don't really need. So he will be here shortly. Also, we'll be talking with my friend Jordan Chacatel, who is another investigative reporter, and he's doing great work in terms of what we are being told about coronavirus, the lockdowns, masks, and Joe Biden's plans to continue to leverage coronavirus panic to keep him under wraps, to keep the media far away from him, asking any questions about Hunter Biden. Um, And so we'll talk with Jordan in a bit, too. Also speaking with Michael Schellenberger, an author, environmental activist, but he actually is on the more sane side of the environmental movement. And he had a great book released this year, a successful bestseller. We are going to talk to Michael about Joe Biden's climate team, which is coming together and includes some people who we should really be concerned about. We know that climate change is going to be one of Joe Biden's top issues. And he is regurgitating people from the Obama administration who are devout climate propagandists. This includes folks like John Kerry and former EPA Director Gina McCarthy. So we look forward to talking to Michael. He is going to give us a little bit of a clue 
as to what we can expect with Joe Biden's uh, climate agenda. But first, let's talk about more revelations related to the um, Russiagate scandal, FISAgate scandal, which unfortunately, as we sit here today, remarkably, uh, infuriatingly, we still have no charges, no major charges brought against what Lee Smith calls the coup plotters. These are the people who weaponize the most powerful government agencies in the world, really, to use against Donald Trump, his campaign, and his associates. So there were more texts released this week between not just Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, but others, and we can get into some of those details with Lee Smith in a bit. Um, But what we find out, those of us who have been covering this, and there have been tremendous journalists who have, from the beginning, saw what this was about, fought upstream of the media who was trying to convince America that Donald Trump had been elected thanks to help by Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin. And um, we are now confirming, confirming that we have been right. And that is that the story we've been told that the FBI initially opened the investigation into Donald Trump's presidential campaign was over a night of drinks with George Papadopoulos and a U.K. diplomat. That diplomat was so concerned, he alerted the FBI. The FBI then opened up a counterintelligence investigation, not only into George Papadopoulos, but three others, including Mike Flynn, the incoming national security advisor. Texts this week confirm that the investigation started before July 31st, 2016, which was has been the company line all along. And now we know, thanks to these texts, that Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, who allegedly also were lovers, that um, the counterintelligence investigation had already begun before July 31st of 2016. Now, the problem there is that the media has been telling us, including the New York Times, for years Also, the Robert Mueller investigation told us, confirmed, or tried to, that the investigation started at that date. We now know that to be yet another lie. Um, And so these texts confirm that. Will the media ever apologize for misleading the American people, that somehow this counterintelligence probe was justified? No. And I think it's important for people to recognize what was happening, why there's still a lot of questions from normal people who don't follow this obsessively like some of us. Why was the Russian collusion hoax concocted? Why to this day do we still not have anyone held accountable, responsible for perpetrating this massive fraud against the American people? Um, What was happening in these texts we now show the dates related to it. The end of July, it's worth remembering that the Democratic National Convention was going on. The place was up for grabs because the DNC emails had been released. And so the Democrats were desperate to try to change the subject from how the DNC was rigging the primaries in favor of Hillary Clinton away from Bernie Sanders. The Bernie bros were up in arms, and this led to the resignation of Debbie Wasserman Schultz and a few other top DNC officials. 
So they were desperate to change the subject, which they successfully did. The media helped them. So the Clinton campaign, and we also know this thanks to notes released by former CIA director John Brennan, that the Hillary campaign was desperate to change the subject. This was really when the Russian collusion hoax was born. The fusion people went to Philadelphia where the convention was and tried to uh, spin the dossier introduced Christopher Steele as this legitimate former British spy. And that is really when this all began. Also, thanks help to uh, thanks to help by the FBI and Jim Comey. So that is why we are still here almost four and a half years later talking about the Russian collusion hoax. Um, the president today uh, has also texted about the role of so-called Republicans, including John McCain, who was a central figure in keeping the Russian hoax alive, meeting with the media, telling them that, you know, these shoes were going to keep dropping. We were going to continue to learn more about Donald Trump's contacts with the Russians, how he worked with Vladimir Putin to rig the election. And uh, so this is today's latest outrage. We're supposed to be defending John McCain and uh, condemning the president. But these texts also apparently continue to reveal John McCain's role and his associate, David Kramer. We'll talk a little bit more with Lee Smith here in a moment about that. Um, But look, this here as Donald Trump uh, obviously prepares to leave the White House, it is a shame Because Joe Biden, had the media been fair, had we known a lot about this information uh, related to Joe Biden's role, had he been questioned, um, had anyone in his inner circle been held accountable, Joe Biden not only would not have been elected, I use air quotes with that, elected, but also um, Donald Trump would have been vindicated for this horrible destructive smear that they've uh, that they attempted against him and against the American people. So I'm looking forward to talking to Lee Smith about that. He, of course, wrote two books, The Plot Against the President, which has been turned into a movie, which is a must-see, and also The Permanent Coup, uh, which is still ongoing, began before the Russia hoax collusion narrative and continue to this day. So it sort of looks like, unfortunately, not only are the were the coup plotters quasi-successful, they are now looking for little goodies from Joe Biden, and some of them are slated to be part of his cabinet and inner circle, uh, which is just a shame. So we will be talking to Lee Smith here in just a moment. and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. So I, when I was asked to fill in for Dan Proft, um, I, the, and allowed to invite some guests. The very first person I thought of 
is my friend Lee Smith, who not only is one of the best investigative journalists out there, he is just a great guy, the great wife. They're really decent people in this business, which is hard to come by. So he graciously offered to uh, speak with me today. So thank you, Lee, and welcome. Julie, thank you for your very kind introduction. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm blushing. That's so nice. And of course, I would accept your offer. It's a, it's a, it's, it's very kind of you to uh, to invite me to speak with you here on your uh, your first show. It's amazing. I'm 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 truly honored. So thanks very much for bringing me on. Well, thank you. You know, Lee, you were the first person I think to really identify how the collusion, Russia collusion, sort of spin was similar to how the Obama administration tried to sell the Iran nuclear deal. And you recognize yeah. that pattern. You had fabulous uh, investigative articles, I believe, posted in the tablet at the time. Yes. Uh-huh. So I urge people who want sort of a back history into this to, to look up those articles. But I sort of want to pick up, Lee, where I left off, and that uh-huh. is, had anyone been held accountable for Russiagate, Spygate, FISAgate? had the media been even a little bit honest about the bad actors involved, um, had we had some sort of special counsel instead of the feckless partisan witch hunt that was the Robert Mueller probe, Joe Biden would never have been the nominee, uh, let alone the cover-up of his son's overseas racket. So if you want to kind of open up there and talk about... Yeah. Well, I mean, the entire impeachment process was to cover up what Joe and Hunter Biden were doing in Ukraine, right? The, the, the president on his phone call, President Trump on his phone call with the Ukrainian president said, I heard what the Bidens were doing in Ukraine and it sounds really terrible. If you could talk about, if you could talk to our attorney general, William Barr about this, it sounds really awful. Um, now we find out that this may have been the subject of a uh, of a DOJ FBI investigation, which is true, is shocking, because what it shows is that the president was impeached by House Democrats not only to cover up what the Bidens were doing in Ukraine, but was impeached for doing the Attorney General's job, right? For asking for help to get to the bottom of what senior American official, a senior American official, namely Joe Biden was doing in Ukraine. Now, where did this come from? Where did the Joe Biden information come from? Well, we remember how the press covered this. Uh, it's Russian disinformation. No, it comes from none other than Joe Biden's big mouth. Joe Biden was in New York at the Council on Foreign Relations in July 2018, where he was boasting about how he had told, he had uh, demanded a quid pro quo from Ukrainian officials saying, if you fire you do not fire the prosecutor investigating the company paying my son more than $80,000 a month. You're not going to get your billion-dollar loan guarantee. So, yes, of course, not just for not just the press. It's not just that the press had covered this accurately. Had we had, uh, had, we had senior law enforcement officials who had not been so determined to target President Trump and apparently defend their preferred candidates, things things might look very different now. I absolutely agree. Lee, what do you think about the fact that this impeachment trial was ongoing uh, as an attempt to cover up Hunter Biden and Joe Biden's tracks, but the Justice mm-hmm. Department 
was already looking into this, yet no one confirmed it. How? What? I, what do yeah. you think about Bill Barr's responsibility or culpability uh, there? I think it's possible DOJ was looking into it. I think it's also possible they were not looking into it. I think that what people are now describing is a full investigation that Hunter Biden is maybe not as well sourced as people are saying. Look, uh, people, the, the, the reports we have right now are that this is a tax investigation. It's quite possible Hunter Biden's going to walk away with a slap on the wrist, pay his back taxes, and everyone will say, see, he told you that Joe Biden's on the level. This is lunch pail Joe. He's a great man. Wow. He's not like corrupt Donald Trump. See, even okay. his, his son paid off his back taxes, everything's uh, squared away. We don't know how this is going to play out. But I said, if it's, if it, if it is true that the DOJ was investigating what was going on in Ukraine, that would be a good thing they were investigating it. But again, but to let the president get impeached for asking questions that the DOJ either was asking or should have been asking, yes, this is a this would be a black stain not on the presidency, but a black stain on the Department of uh, yet another black stain on the Department of Justice. So it would not be surprising, given what we've seen over the last four years and how that institution has been run and how that institution is cherished by the priesthood of lawyers who go in and out of there. And one of the amazing things is, is to see the priesthood that exists even after people have left the Department of Justice. It's like this pure virgin bride that, that must go unsullied forever. It's, it's the most important thing is the Department of Justice. No, no, it doesn't matter whether or not it serves the American people, because by the way, most of the American people are not worthy of the beautiful virgin bride, the Department of Justice. It's a priesthood. We see people coming out of there defending all sorts of execrable statements, actions. It's perverse. So, again, we we don't know exactly um, whether the Department of Justice was investigating the things they should have been. But again, the paradox is if they had, had they been, investigating what Hunter Biden was up to in Ukraine and China, the idea that the president was impeached for doing the DOJ's, DOJ's job is a scene. You know, now when I hear someone say rule of law, I, yeah. right, I mean, how they have oh, completely yeah. Yeah. desecrated, and not only that, right. Lee, you've seen this, people who once were so skeptical of federal agencies, yeah. especially the Justice Department and the intelligence yeah. community, to see them, like you say, they are immune from any criticism, anyone who dares to. I mean, you know, it would be great to hear some of your stories about how people uh, are, you know, have gone after any journalist who's tried to expose this. But that's what is the uh, just galling part. Um, And so in in our next segment, though, I do want to talk, and we've got about a minute here till our next break. Um, What do you think about the possibility that anything would be coming out of a John Durham special counsel investigation? Yeah, I hope it will be. But with a Biden administration due to take over January 20th, I don't see much coming of it. I hear all sorts of people saying, well, if he makes indictments, then it would be a terrible thing would be a stain on the Biden administration. That's nonsense. It's delusional, right? The reason that Trump was not able to fire Mueller had to do with two things. The press, uh, Republican senators, remember, who were talking about legislation to protect Robert Mueller, and of course, Trump's own legal team. The Joe Biden administration will face no such dilemmas. The Joe Biden Department of Justice, when it fires John Durham, will be celebrated by the press 
for defending democracy and conservative pundits across the country, you can be assured, will wring their hand saying, that's so unfair. Isn't that so unfair? It's just terrible and unfair. That's what's going to happen. You're exactly right. We'll hit on the other side here. Lindsey Graham sort of said the same thing last night, so we'll we'll get to that on the other side. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Getting back to what we were talking about, um, Lindsey Graham, who promised for years to get to the bottom of what the FBI was doing. He also promised to get to the bottom of the Mueller probe. You know, that's sort of his line. Um, He was saying last night he was sort of whining, to your point, Mm -hmm. that, you know, (laughs) you know, why his Democratic colleagues, he helped protect the Mueller probe and was going to even introduce legislation. You know, why do these guys not fall for it? They're complicit. I mean, and yeah. So well, they shouldn't. Yeah, they shouldn't have protected Mueller to begin with. It should have been obvious to people that was a crooked operation from the outset, right? And all these people coming out and vouching for Robert Mueller's integrity. I mean, that's on them, right? Right. Uh, so w- 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 why are they? Look, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not giving them a break, mind you. I'm just explaining it, and I think that this applies for lots of people across the board. The people that they have to take on, the people that they have to tackle are scary, right? They do scary things. These are scary, ruthless people. We've seen them wage a coup for four years against the president of the United States. This is one reason Donald Trump is alone. It's not just because people are stupid and they don't recognize what's happening. They see what's happening, but they're scary, right? So you have to have nerves of steel to walk through the fire that these guys lay down. Right. Who had nerves of steel, who did it. You know, we know, we talk about it all the time. Devin Nunes, Cash Patel, Jack Langer. These are the guys who did it, right? Other people, they don't want the heat. They don't want it from the press. They don't want it from uh, whatever. They don't want it from donors. They don't want it from lobbyists. I, I don't know. I mean, just name it. They don't want the heat. That's not why most people come to Washington to fight for, uh, you know, to fight for the American public in that way. So, yeah, and I think you see no, this, yeah, I think you see this, too, with the judges who refuse to entertain or even hear any of these provable cases of election right. fraud. Uh, right. Even the Supreme Court, they see what these people will do and they're not going to step up, like you said, to defend Donald Trump, let right. alone the American people, because right. they they just terrorize. I mean, they are domestic right. terrorists. What these agencies right. I mean, you talked uh, at Lou Dobbs last night about, you know, the CIA and defense. All of these major agencies, what they have done, uh, how they've turned their power against the American people and the elected president. Yeah, they've made us vulnerable. I will say one thing, though, not in defense of them. I I think the president should have. He should. When he began, he should have taken someone out in the courtyard and he should have drawn and quartered them to yeah. set an example, mm-hmm. right? That's what should have happened. And nothing like that ever happened, right? There was, 
He got angry at Rex Tillerson. He got angry at James Mattis after they started mouthing off. And, you know, I don't think it was such a bad thing for him to mouth off. But, you know, all of the lessons of politics that we know, right, don't wound an adversary, either leave them alone or destroy them, right? So when you're talking about judges, when people were, in many ways, we're simply talking about power politics, right? When people saw where the balance of power was, who were the people who are willing to do awful, terrible things to have their way, and who are the people who are not? So again, I'm not justifying the different decisions that people made. I think they should, I think, I think they should all be in big trouble. I think that they should be, uh, you know, the, the different members of the court who backed off this, they should be shamed. But the people, you know, the people who broke the law to target the president, they should go to jail, right, for a very long time. But we also have to say, what did the president do in his own, not just in his own defense, in defense of the, in defense of the country, right? I, I mean, if, right. if William Barr wasn't going to get the job done, if John Durham wasn't going to get the job done, someone needed to get the job done because that was one of the reasons we saw the election interference. It's, it's a, a, by a domestic election interference fraud. Right. And that's one of the reasons why we see these different foreign actors right now targeting American institutions, because we look like we look ridiculous. Right. No one takes us seriously at this point. Our, our foreign adver- our adversaries are very serious about doing damage to us. We know that at least. And when they look and they see the director of the CIA, the former and current director of the CIA, the former one tweeting angrily at Trump, the current one withholding documents the president asked for, and the same thing with the former and current director of the FBI, they know we're weak. I mean, they read the papers. It's not hard to tell. You don't need secret spies inside the White House or DOD saying what's going on. In our next segment, I, I want to talk, uh, get really get into that um, because it. how could any foreign adversary really do more damage to our country and our institutions than what we're doing right now. So uh, we'll talk about that next. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Touching on uh, what you were just talking about, your books, and uh, so you have written two books the last few years, amazingly, (laughs) that are so well-sourced, so well-put together, and readable. I mean, you know this, Lee, uh, more than anyone. When you're talking about detailed subjects and controversial subjects, you Mm -hmm. need to make them kind of readable to people who don't follow every detail of this, which you did successfully. Um, So your first book, The Plot Against the President, which now is a uh, documentary, I watched it with my college daughter, I wanted to tell you, Uh and she was, her mind was blown. I mean, she's on Uh our side, which is good, but it just is so inimical to everything that we've been taught as Americans. So right. it's just a good wake-up call for so many people. Let's right. talk a little bit about your book and then your follow-up, The Permanent Coup, yeah. the involvement of these agencies, these really malicious mm-hmm. actors like John Brennan, Jim Clapper, yeah. um, you uh-huh. know, how they were involved and how, if ever, we can restore the integrity of these institutions. Right. Let me start by saying we cannot restore the integrity of these institutions. 
I think that these institutions need to, I think they need to be deauthorized. They need to be taken offline, whatever it is that happens. Probably in some ways, the for, uh, formation of the CIA was a mistake from the beginning to create a an agency that was just supposed to go out and spy rather than be attached to particular military. Or, uh, Angelo Cotavilla has written about this. You and I have talked about this. Mm-hmm. But I think that his point is exactly right, you know, to just have a spy agency uh, without being attached to a particular mission was a recipe for disaster. We're giving people budgets and people uh, people with a lot of time on their hands figuring out different things to do with their money and their resources and their talents. The FBI right now, I, I mean, look, I look at what's happened. At least half the country, it will be a generation at least before one half of the country trusts the FBI. I think maybe you were speaking about some of these um some of these text messages that Senators Grassley and Johnson released yet on, uh, what was it, uh, Thursday, mm-hmm. uh, Thursday of this week. You know, one of them, there's some, some official, I don't know where he comes from, but he's telling, you know, FBI agent Peter Strzok, it's like right now the, the future reputation of the FBI rests on your shoulders. I hope oh, you're happy. I hope you're uh, okay with that. Just, <laughs> well, that's, my, that's how I see it anyway. Now, I don't know if the person who wrote him, that was a good guy or a bad guy. But we see the way it's played out, right? We see how this is played out. At least half the country now will associate the FBI with people who targeted the president they voted for and who targeted aides of the president, like General Michael Flynn, like Carter Page, like George Papadopoulos. So um, what's the point of having an institute? What for people on the right, or not necessarily people on the right, but for people who voted for Donald Trump, what is the point of having federal law uh, enforcement that has targeted, that used its resources and manpower to target the president that you voted for? I mean, how, how can you defend that? Right? And what, oh, well, and what were they from, doing? How, they protect us from terrorists. How exactly. do you know they protect us from terrorists? I mean, don't know that. it looks like all they did was text each other all day long. It's like, yeah. you know, they were like junior high school girls. You're right. Who yeah. was protecting us? You see the failures of the FBI uh, under the Comey years. Well, now we know right. why they direct they directed all of their yeah. attention to innocent people right. ruining their mm-hmm. lives while our, yeah. as you said, our foreign adversaries uh, were plotting and scheming and, and, and successfully planning to infiltrate our 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 country um mm-hmm. yes. so in our last few minutes here lee um not only are the coup plotters not held accountable or been charged mm-hmm. with anything they now are being rewarded by joe biden so sure, right. uh if you want to yeah. go through a quick list of some of yeah. the <laughs> some yeah. of the I perks mean, Jay, well I mean, I mean, Joe, I mean, Biden first of all, let's start, at the top, let's start at the top, Joe Biden, right? right? I mean, we saw documentary evidence over the last six months uh, released by DNI, by acting director uh, Rick Grinnell and Cash Patel, who were doing the job that Dan Coates refused to do for three years. Mm-hmm. You know, the documents that they, that, that they declassified showed that Joe Biden played an active role in targeting General Michael Flynn. So he's at the top, you know, and then you look at his national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, who was involved in pushing the Russia collusion uh, narrative to the press starting in two, July 2016 at the Democratic National Convention in, mm-hmm. in Philadelphia. Uh, I mean, all of these people have been pushing it, whether it was Neera Tandon, who's supposed to be head of uh, uh, OMB, whether it was Secretary of State, uh, you know, Secretary of State um, nominee uh, Anthony Blinken, 
All of them are on TV pushing Russia collusion. Who knows what the uh, who knows what our spy services are going to be like? The CIA, the FBI, the NSA. But as I say, these institutions are so badly compromised at this point. The way I see it, it matters little who's actually managing them. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I, I we keep hearing that there are really great people on the on the working the uh, working the streets, the, the the regular agents out there. Like, okay, you know, okay, I'll take people for what it's worth. But how, how about this? Why haven't any of them come forward to say right. what was going on? Why didn't anyone stop what was going on, right? So why are we supposed to have faith in these people? We hear, again, like how they're serving the country, how they're protecting the country. But again, we're seeing massive cyber attacks now on uh, federal bureaucracies here in Washington. Who's doing anything to stop it? They're not because their attention is, has been focused on targeting the president of the United States, his administration, and Trump supporters. Why should any of us have any faith in these institutions anymore? That's a rhetorical way of saying we don't. We don't. And I think we also need to lay blame at the feet of Senate Republicans. I mean, you you talked about Devin Nunes, Cash Patel, Jeff yeah. Langer. I mean, you literally had those three or four people yeah. taking all yeah. the fire. And when you look back at what they went through in 2017, 2018, really alone, mm-hmm abandoned by also Senate Republicans. But, you know, we're told that Republicans have to keep control of the Senate because that's our only bulwark against, you know, the Democrats. In our last few seconds here, what's your evaluation of that line? My evaluation is that uh, our center of gravity is not in Washington. America's center of gravity, not just on the right, but America's center of gravity is the 75 million people who voted for Donald Trump. That's a serious force. These are serious people who believe important things about the country. They cherish our symbols, cherish our history, cherish family and the United States. That's our center of gravity. Moving forward, these are the important things. What happens in Washington is much less important. That is a great way to end our segment here. Good way to think uh, optimistically. So, Lee, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all of your hard work. Show.com. Does everyone remember last spring? Seems like 10 years ago, but last spring when we were told we had to cancel Easter. This was part of the whole flatten the curve, make the virus go away if everyone just stayed at home and didn't get together, didn't let your child go see the Easter Bunny, etc. We had that montage of, uh, 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 you know, the cities that were all empty on Easter Sunday. No one was around. Who would have thought here we would be? not only canceling Thanksgiving, but now being told by the very same people that we are going to have to cancel Christmas. Gretchen Whitmer, the uh, governor of Michigan, had an absolutely creepy propaganda piece out. I want to play it uh, for you. and You can hear it, but you also should look it up yourselves. This was uh, pretty outrageous. Thank you for joining us. I'm Governor Gretchen Whitmer, and I'm really excited to be here with all of you. And I also know someone who's been 
really following the rules and making sure that he stays safe and the elves stay safe. And so my special guest is Santa Claus. Hello, boys and girls. How are you? Does anyone have a question for Santa Claus? Santa, do you have to wear a mask? When I'm in my workshop with all my elves, we all are masked up in social distancing. Hi, Santa. Hi, Santa. Hi, Santa. Should you leave out cookies and milk? Also, some carrots for the reindeer this year. Yes, please do. Set out carrots and cookies if you can. I also also say hand sanitizer if you're done with the cookies and milk. That was a good suggestion. Excuse me, Santa. Yes. Everyone has been testing negative. We're still getting tested. I think we're so far up north that it might not be getting to us, but we're not going to take any chances. We're all going to mask up. We're all going to wash our hands, and we're all going to stay six feet apart. Keep people safe for Christmas. What I would suggest to do is what the governor is telling all the people of the great state of Michigan to do. Social distance, wash your hands, and make sure you wear your masks when you're outside your home. And another way to stay safe during the holiday is to stay home but call your grandparents and your cousins and your family and it's the safest way to tell the people you love how much you care about them. This year it has to look a little bit different so we can stay safe. And I appreciate all of you doing your part. Santa, thank you so much for making time for us today. Let's hear your best. Oh, ho, 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 Bye, everybody. Nothing like using kids and Santa at Christmas time to promote and perpetuate your coronavirus hysteria. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. I am so excited to have my next guest here, my friend Jordan Schachtel, who he and I have been in a political bunker together when the coronavirus hysteria first began last spring. And we were told we needed 15 days to flatten the curve. Um, and then that went into another month-long lockdown based on really terrible, shoddy models, flawed models, which have now been completely debunked. Um, Jordan and I were part of a very small group of writers, pundits, journalists who were calling this out from the very beginning. Jordan was very brave, very courageous. Uh, he still is to this day. <laughs> I'm not taking that away from him. But we took in a lot of incoming fire, including by friends and allies on the right, and called every name in the book, really condemned. And so 
when I was asked to do this show. Jordan was also at the top of my list. He does great work. He has his um, own, I guess you would call it website, where he documents all of his articles and research into coronavirus hysteria, you know, these bogus mitigation strategies. And so, Jordan, thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So, Jordan, let's uh, start with what we're now being told by the Grinches who have tried to strip away all of our happiness, joy, celebrations this year. Now they're going to end the year with a bang. Well, I guess they still have New Year's Eve. They can tell us we can't celebrate that either, uh, which everyone will want to to quickly get rid of the year 2020. We have Anthony Fauci and others giving the same warnings that they gave about Thanksgiving not to get together. There was going to be a huge surge in cases and hospitalizations, and you were going to kill grandma if your college student came home and you had turkey dinner. We're now hearing that from Fauci, folks like Gretchen Whitmer. What do you what do you say? I know we sound like broken records, but what do you say to people about what we're being told? It, it's really just unbelievable at this point, as you said. You know, in March we had the 15 days to stop the spread. You know, the goalposts have moved so far, and that's why like, it's so important to track this stuff. It was never about you know killing a virus or you know getting ninety percent of the population vaccinated. It, it's just we we went from a a place of like kind of co- somewhat common sense with the fifteen days, even though you know you and I were against the fifteen days stuff of lockdowns because we we thought even that was bad. But now we're at a point where they're talking about extinguishing a virus. And, you know, you can never be too safe and we're going to mask, Fauci's saying we're going to mask up until, you know, at least wintertime next year until he's confident that he can give us um, our rights back. The, the goalposts and the, the conversation dynamics have changed so much that it's just so preposterous that like, it's tough to even respond to this stuff at, at this point. We're just, um, these people are acting like complete uh, unhinged totalitarians and they have the consent of, so much of the population, which is which, what really drives them to say these ridiculous things, and I, I think they're loving it. You know, I think people like Whitmer and Fauci, this is probably like the best year of their lives because these are just like sick, twisted people. Um, they love the TV spots. They they love you know if you're if you're Gretchen Whitmer getting up there and telling people exactly what they can and can't do with their lives. You know, they're on this massive power trip, and they they sadly they. You know, they thrive off of this stuff. No one even knew who Gretchen Whitmer was before, uh, you know, the coronavirus pandemic. And now, you know, people on our side think of her correctly as you know, one of the most, you know, evil totalitarian governors we have. But you know, these people are getting famous off this stuff. No one cared about what Fauci was saying before this. Uh, so now we're constantly having to, you know, bat back all these ridiculous things they're saying. But there comes a point in time, you know, when we have a lot, a uh, large percentage of the population, unfortunately, that's so propagandized by this stuff that I think we just need to build coalitions around people who kind of get it or who are on the fence. But if you're you know, one of those people that are mask-shaming people in mid-December of 2020, uh, there's not much hope for these people at this point. <laughs> and there really isn't. And your word is your description of these people, Fauci, Burks, etc. The word twisted is right because they are not working anymore in the public best interest. This isn't about public health. Um, 
how can Fauci, Dr. Fauci, look at any updated data or research while in between all of his media hits and his magazine cover stories, et cetera? This isn't about science or data. It's completely about control. Why do people, why do you think people continue to submit to these lunatics? Yeah, I think that, that kind of delves deep into human psychology. And unfortunately, I think a lot of it has to be our, our buddy Jesse Kelly who talks about how we're, we've are we lived such a comfortable life in America and haven't really had any disturbances unless, you know, you've had family that served in maybe Afghanistan, Iraq, and you know, either firsthand or, or thirdhand uh, understood these horrors of war and you know, the costs of you know, preserving a republic. A lot of people, you know, just grew up in the uh, Netflix and, uh, you know, everything is remotely controlled and they had a nice, safe life. And this is the first, I think, big time, uh, I think it's a manufactured crisis that we're dealing with, but this is, you know, the first perceived legitimate threat of their lifetimes. And people have just been basically scared into submission. Um, it says a lot about, you know, where the culture is at in today's America um, and what people particularly value, you know, when we have this security versus liberty debate. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with that. Do you at all sense people are waking up at all? I mean, I think the mask obedience is worse now than it was in the spring and summer. But do you think that some of these restaurants fighting back, just regular business owners, Americans, you know, the surge that was supposed to happen after Thanksgiving never did. Are you picking up at all? Have you heard from people who are reading your your articles and your research and saying, okay, maybe I was wrong at the beginning, but yeah, there there's something really off here. I think one of the optimistic sides of things here is that we're seeing a lot of people in the small business community really starting to, you know, they've completely lost their patience. And that's where we're seeing, I think, the best signs of pushback, especially in the restaurant industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have plenty of uh, mutual people follow us on social media who kind of are, you know, wanted to stay out of it. And now it's come to the point where, you know, they need to fight for them, for their livelihoods to stay open. Um, and you're seeing a lot of this in California, you know, very ultra liberal state where there is uh, sufficient pushback because they know they, they've come to the point where they realize that these people aren't going to stop and they have no problem shutting down the business. Um, as for the masks, it, it's very interesting to me because, you know, my background's in foreign policy and I, my, um, I don't want to call it expertise, but, you know, my region of study in the academic world and the journalism world uh, for a long time was the Middle East. And in a lot of the Middle East, you have this mandatory hijab mm-hmm. issue, the, the, the face covering the burqa. The mask debate is very much, it's very much parallel. To, um, in a lot of these Gulf states, you know, they're trying to roll back when they're modernizing, trying to roll back the hijab thing but it's become like such a cultural institution and, and they, they make kind of this. And I'm, I'm afraid that the masks are almost becoming an institution because when you hear arguments about masks now, it's all about, Oh, you know, this is like a sanitary thing. It prevents disease. You know, you can help other people by wearing a mask and nothing is about, you know, individual responsibility or about personal health. It's like this collective thing. And, and it's very disturbing to me because it doesn't seem like, you know, in, in Florida, it's different because you have a great governor like Ron DeSantis. But even, you know, I just arrived in Florida and 
still, you know, in yes. every store there's there's mandatory face coverings, uh, despite the governor saying, you know, we're not going to enforce um, people like if people don't want to wear a mask, we're not going to like, you know, get them arrested and thrown in jail and stuff like that. But you know, it's become like this cultural institution uh, masking up people, so that's going to be very difficult to unwind. And you've done some great research into mask use, and I know there was a new study that I believe was released this week stating, again, sort of the obvious that masks not only don't work but could make you sick because you're trapping bacteria, these poor people who have to wear them all day working. Um, But you're right. I also spend time in Florida, and the mask obedience there is as bad, worse now than it was uh, even, say, back in September. Um, On the flip side, Jordan, I want to get into your work in our next segment, um, what you're expecting out of the Joe Biden administration at least the first 100 days. Also, you've done great research into testing. I think that you know, we need to talk more about this testing regime, how it, how flawed it is, how people are profiting off of it. Uh, and your article here, if you can explain a little bit about that on, on, in the next uh, segment, that would be great. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show i'm talking with my friend jordan Bechtel, who does great research into coronavirus the hysteria masks testing I want to talk about Joe Biden's first 100 days, which I apparently, Jordan, there's a study somewhere that says there's a 100-day success rate for mask mandates, that that will actually finally get rid of COVID-19. Have you looked into that science and data and research by any chance? Yeah, it's very interesting when people just shoot out numbers from the hip that they have all these, you know, there's so many scientific studies that basically you can you can be Bill Gates or, or one of these you know, big farm organizations and have the conclusion ready to go. And you hire a few scientists and they'll tell you whatever you want, mm-hmm. you want to say. So I, I don't really like when you look at the, the data on mask wearing, I think that's the important part. I think people like, you know, Dr. Scott Atlas is really stressed. Like, let's just look at the, the, the hard numbers here. And there's no proof that shows that mask movies, um, even though everyone is wearing a mask, uh, there's no proof that mask mandates are going to you know, stop the pandemic or do anything positive. And now you have, as you mentioned earlier, you, you have these new studies coming out. They're saying, hey, maybe it's actually contributing to infection. It's funny because I think someone like Joe Biden wants people to wear masks to honor his presidency. Fauci has talked about this. He's also bragged when he sees people out on the trail or outdoors and they don't have their mask. They immediately put their mask back on. Um, this is sort of a way to bend the knee to our our betters, our authorities. You, what else? Now, Joe Biden also talked, mentioned the other day, apparently that he was going to, after the first hundred days, try to open up schools. Of course, he fudged the science once again, saying that elementary schools were major spreaders of the of the virus, which of course is completely untrue. No fact checkers looked into that. Um, he's going to continue to help keep our schools closed, I think, until the teachers union successfully shake him down for his $100 billion at least. 
where are we with school closings? Why are these schools still closed? Why would Joe Biden give any validity to that completely unscientific and inhumane policy of keeping our kids out of school? So what Joe Biden's trying to do, or the people that are running the Joe Biden show, they're trying to set up a political victory for him very early on. And you can see it with this 100 days plan. It's a very deceptive ruse, essentially, because we already know, having experienced the coronavirus outbreak in the spring and the summer, that cases uh, in the majority of the country will dip significantly, you know, regardless of the vaccination that's going on. It, it's guaranteed that this plan is going to work. And what's what's funny about this Biden plan is, oh, you know, he says, oh, I'm going to you know, try to push through a federal mask mandate and there's constitutional issues and stuff. But we already know that the vast majority of the country, the data is out there, the vast majority of the country, everyone's wearing masks indoors, uh, you know, 95 plus percent in these in these major urban areas, very liberal. It, it's essentially unanimous. Um, so, so the idea that you need to, like, push a mask mandate to get people to mask up more, it, it's just it, it's it's un it's unreal that they're doing this kind of thing. Um, and it is very uh, inhumane because we already have the data on the schools that you know, kids aren't you know, getting infected or transmitting the virus for the most part. To teachers, you know, there's, there's zero uh, confirmed cases of a you know, teacher getting it from a student and falling ill to it. Um, all of these narratives are, are fiction. And this is a 100% political move, this 100 days plan. Because even if you even if you put in place the worst possible policies of all time, even like deliberately trying to get people sick, people understand, and I've understood for a long time, and there's a lot of research on this, that respiratory season is at its peak in the winter, and people seem to have forgotten about this. You know, whether it's the flu or whether it's our you know coronavirus uh, epidemics that we have going on, is that there's going to be a dip, and what's going to happen? Um, you know, I've already written about this. Is that it, it, when those 100 days are up? Biden's going to point to, or Kamala, if Biden if, if Biden doesn't make it 100 days, uh, right. they're going to say, "Look what we did! Look how you know successful we've been." The media is going to you know cheer and applaud because the media is invested in them um, being successful as well, and you know this corrupt ruse that is going to force uh, school children to stay home because the Biden, team Biden wants a political victory. They're going to get success automatically, and they're going to say, you know, it was the will of our policies and and what, you know, our, our brilliant uh, advisors have put together and look what we've done. And, of course, they're going to ignore that the rest of the world has, has seen you know, a total drop in cases uh, dis, despite, you know, whatever's going on with the vaccination process at that point. It's a total um, – it's a disgusting political ruse. You can already see, gallingly, Joe Biden trying to take credit for the vaccine. You can see people, uh, senators like Dick Durbin, who commended Operation Warp Speed but refused to mention even Donald Trump's name for that. Um, And so I think you're exactly right. This is all set up to create this big success story for him. Um, do you want to talk in the last few minutes? Can you stay another segment, too, because I do want to get into testing, uh, your piece on testing and just exposing yeah, sure. a little bit of testing. What we're seeing some, I don't know if it's propaganda, a little bit mixed results about the vaccine. People, I think, justifiably concerned about it being rushed out. A lot of the machinations behind the scenes, especially with Dr. Scott Gottlieb and Pfizer, um, where are you on the vaccine? What would you tell people from your point of expertise about 
uh, about this about the vaccines that are coming out? Yeah. So in my work studying this, and by the way, I think that vaccines have been terrific um, instruments when it came to you know eliminate eradicating polio and and several other diseases. Uh, the one issue I have is with this uh, bullying campaign that's pushing people to get the vaccine, even if they aren't particularly threatened by the coronavirus and people that are continue to push the envelope on mandatory vaccination. The reality here is that all these big pharma companies sped through, you know, it, it's called Operation Warp Speed, right? So mm-hmm. they, they went at rapid speed through all of these human trials and the human trials were very limited. Um, they do not deliver, they, there's very much that they don't know about not so much, you know, the side effects, because I don't think that, you know, they would be malicious enough or, or stupid enough to put out a vaccine that could potentially be very harmful to people. But they don't know the real efficacy of the vaccine because they haven't really had time to study it. And that's just the reality of it. Um, and if you're someone who's, you know, under 50 years old, you have a pretty much, unless you have some kind of like severe uh, comorbid condition, and if you're a healthy person, you don't really have anything to worry about. So the idea that people are, you know, pushing this compulsory vaccination is very, very dangerous. And I think it, you know, it threatens the integrity of, of our system as a whole, because, you know, this is a country that was founded on people being able to make their own choices. So the idea that we need to vaccinate the entire population for a virus that has maybe, you know, 997 to 8% recovery rate for the general population, um, it's just very disturbing to me that they're pushing the envelope so far. And, you know, God forbid if there's some serious side effects in some people because the vaccine was pushed through, um, these companies aren't even liable. So I think that people should be fighting for the right to at least be able to make their own choices. Well said. I agree. All right. We will get to information on testing after this break. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Jordan, I think one of the big revelations in 2021 is going to be finally people exposing this testing regime, the flawed tests that were being used. Um, and who's making money off of this? You have a great piece up about the testing industrial complex. Um, I know college kids who live in basically a police state on college campuses, their universities are forcing them to take like three tests a, a, a week. It's complete insanity. Can you talk a little bit about your piece um, about testing overall, the flaws in those tests, and what people are going to find out uh, in the coming months about coronavirus tests. Yeah, I did kind of a deep dive into the numbers, the financial numbers behind the testing industry, because, uh, you know, before 2020, there was no COVID testing industry. So I want to see how big it's became. It's become over the course of a year. And the numbers are absolutely shocking. Um, In the United States alone, um, just the revenue generated from coronavirus testing, you know, minus the lab collection, minus the doctor's visit costs that come into that, we're approaching 
um, a pace of almost $100 billion per year. So we've created an industry in America that, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, we have this vaccination and everything's just going to go away. They're already finding reasons, as you've seen in the, you know, the big pharma and public health propaganda, reasons to get, you know, continue to get tested because they say, oh, the vaccine might not work to prevent infection. You still get tested, tested, tested. Um, it, it is shocking how much money has been going into this system. And it's basically, you know, overlapping the entire healthcare industry and corrupting an unfortunate number of these companies. The FDA has, it's been well documented, has basically rubber stamped every company. They've rubber stamped over 100 companies that are doing coronavirus testing. Um, and we know about the cycle threshold problem, about you know pe- people being diagnosed with these false PCR tests. Can you talk a real quick? Can you talk a little bit about that? I know it's kind of complicated, but when you're talking about the cycle threshold test and the yeah. inconsistency, what are the what does that mean? Uh, so I guess the best analogy, even though it's not scientific, is you think of it as like a magnification, and there's a certain uh, it's cycle thresh. It's called a cycle threshold, and there's a certain multiplier where the test no longer becomes, um, you know, satisfactory to prove anything. And these most of these tests, and if you don't believe me, you know, you could read the New York Times, which reported that you know maybe 90% of these positives might in fact be false positives. The way that these tests are being created is that they're basically useless. Uh, because they over-amplify and, you know, they're finding all kinds of dead virus particles, other coronaviruses, because it's so over-amplified um, and it's not really telling them anything. And the recommendations have always been to be under a certain number, and most of these tests are well over a certain number. And unfortunately, you know, we, we, have, we have these government agencies, public health agencies in place that are supposed to be monitoring for this stuff, but for whatever, for whatever reason, politics, lobbying involved, they're passing through all these tests. So now we have over 100 companies involved in this testing process. You have an incentive to bring back positive cases, too, because if, you're, if everyone's testing negative, you know, what's the point of continuing to test, right? So we've kind of propped up this case-demic industry, and it's a $100 billion a year. It's, it's growing into a $100 billion a year industry in the United States. This would be, um, you know, if you compare costs, wow. This would make it the third biggest military in the United States if you were to spend, in, in the world if you were to spend it on defense. I mean, only China and the United States spend more than $100 billion on defense a year. Um, and it, it's just incredible how, how big this industry has gotten. And, again, giving props to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He, once again, is ahead of the curve asking for um, – to get the cycle threshold uh, tests or at least some uniformity there because people are going to be shocked to realize how many of these tests are overly sensitive, picking up things that have nothing to do with COVID-19. Um, and do you think that that will help set some standards? I mean, this testing, there's too much money there, so right? So that's not going to go away, but at least we can start to inform people what this testing regime is all about. So it's very important that we have responsible politicians, and I and I hope that more uh, governors and even you know on a local level you can you can pass legislation to make sure that your your local labs or at your local college isn't using some bad um, too high of a cycle threshold. There's a lot of 
um, responsibility that uh, politicians can uh, they can sure. they can move the ball forward on this issue. That's for sure. Jordan, thank you so much. Keep doing your solid investigative journalism, actual journalism. Um, I think the long view of this, people are going to be shocked at what they were duped into believing, and I think a lot of your work will help expose that. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks again. The Dan Proft Show. With me now is my friend Liz Sheld. There's, it's really hard to describe Liz because she knows everyone. <laughs> she does everything. She's a font of knowledge on all things important, and she's just a lot of fun. We have a podcast together called Happy Hour. If you want to check that out after this show over the weekend. So thanks, Liz. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me, Julie. <laughs> so, Liz, we talk about so many things, but I think um, we should talk first about the vaccine and some of the videos that are coming out. And, <laughs> um, you know, we're all going to be forced to be stabbed with Scott Gottlieb's syringe of uh, miracles. So what's the, what's the latest there? What what's going on? One thing that struck one story that struck me this morning when I was going through the news to write my morning briefing over at American Greatness was a story about a nurse in Tennessee who had just gotten back the vaccine and she was giving a press conference and then in the middle of the press conference she just collapsed and it's on video. There's Not someone posted really good publicity. Bad optics, just really bad <laughs> optics. And so, of course, this is horrifying. And um, afterwards, because she, she fell down and a doctor caught her, helped her on her way down. And then a swarm of, like, white coats surrounds her. And then there was a little follow-up where we learned that she just, she always faints. Um, you know, she just always Maybe faints. they should have vetted her before. You know, maybe not get the nurse who doesn't faint when she feels pain, I feel like well, that would be a no-brainer. Is it a problem to have a nurse that faints really easily? <laughs> like, are you in the middle of an operation and you're just down? Or perhaps you're administering CPR and you're just out? <laughs> I'm just saying it, 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 the optics were, were, were bad. And I think there's been a couple stories highlighting the side effects of this vaccine, which we really haven't heard much about. Some of the side effects we know of so far are that you could have an allergic reaction and a rash. There was a nurse in Alaska that took the shot, got the shot, and then all of a sudden she started to get covered in hives, and they nice. they gave her the, I guess, it's epinephrine shot um, that people who have like peanut allergies that go into an anaphylactic shock take immediately. Then she was in ICU. We were told that was just a precaution. <laughs> so there was, there was that, that her, her hives went away. Then they came back. So, you know, there are side effects and, you know, there's side effects to everything. So it's not as if we should expect this to be perfect, but we should expect some honesty about what, this does involve so that people can make informed choices about whether they want to get the vaccine if, in fact, we are allowed to have choices. 
Well, that's just the thing. And I mean, we are not anti-vaxxers. Liz comes from a, a family of healthcare providers, doctors, nurses. We're not anti-vax, but I think we follow this closely enough to see there is reason for people to have concern. I don't know if you saw Tucker Carlson's monologue last night, yes. but he also talks about now we're being any dispute, any criticism, any skepticism about this vaccine is now going to be shut down, silenced by our big tech overlords, uh, overlords in Silicon Valley. How does that inspire confidence? Well, it doesn't. And I think we've been told so many different things by our betters, our smarter, the smarter people, you know, mm-hmm. my body, my choice, right? Remember my body, my choice. Oh, no, I forgot all about that. Yeah. Well, good. <laughs> because you, you need to forget about that because that those rules are, are, are over now. But as with anything concerning medicine, medical procedures and your health, we tell people to get informed. We tell people get a second opinion. Um, and so, except now, I guess that it's different and it's unfortunate there is a censorship. I think people, it, it just looks really suspicious. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm, I myself am not a scientist. I'm not an immunologist. I don't know anything about this vaccine, but I do think it's unusual when, when we can't talk about it. It sounds like something's being covered up, whether it's being covered up or not. Or also that this virus is not as horrible, lethal, deadly, as they've told us, that they can speed up this vaccine in a matter of six or seven months, that you can have several companies who've already done all the testing, approved it. I mean, there's a lot to be said for breaking down that FDA, all the barriers, but you went from a normal time frame of five years down to a matter of really six or seven months. And of course, all the people who are profiting off of this like right. your, your best friend and mine, Scott Gottlieb, the former head of the FDA, now Pfizer board member. And new rich man, <laughs> new very rich man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, it, it, people were already suspicious to begin with because it was so fast. And no one really knows if it was fast because there's literally five years of bureaucracy and it really only takes six months to get a vaccine to market. I don't know. But again, be discouraging people from having conversations about it, asking questions, getting answers. It's it just looks it looks suspicious and it makes people that are on the fence. I'm open minded. Obviously, I would if I can avoid getting this disease or this this virus, I would like to avoid it. But I also would weigh you know, I would want to weigh my, my costs. Now, now we were also told, hey, you can get vaccinated, but you're still going to have to wear a mask and socially distant. Well, wait, what? I mean, what, 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 then why am I going to get a vaccine? Because you can still get it and you can still spread it. And it, it's like, well, this seems like they're moving the goalposts now. <laughs> As usual. I mean, you had yes. Dr. Vin Gupta, who is with the same outfit that brought us the the disastrous Chris Murray models out of the Gates funded uh, IHME, University of Washington, tell people, even if you get the two doses of the vaccine, don't be thinking you can travel. Don't be get doing something crazy like getting on an airplane. Um, yeah, they keep changing the goalposts and it just it, into perpetuity and we're all going to be living in pods. It, it makes it makes no sense because I, I wonder what's the upside of the vaccine then that I'm not going to get the disease. I'm just still going to be socially isolated and financially ruined. 
Right. I mean, is that is that? What? I mean, theoretically, I'm not supposed to get the vaccine if I wear a mask and don't go anywhere. So they also I mean, said there was a poll that said a lot of healthcare workers are not going to take this vaccine, not because they're concerned, but probably because they realize they don't need it. Liz, on the flip side, I want to talk to you about the election hearing that you watched this week and uh, let people know what went down. Show.com. So, Liz, we, uh, you watched Ron Johnson's hearing, explosive hearing, into election fraud, which we know is a baseless conspiracy theory by the right and Trump people. What happened during that hearing Wednesday? What did we learn? What are they trying to cover up? Well, we had um, a good hearing on election irregularities with several people that were lawyers at at different cases around the country. And then also uh, Chris Krebs, who was the fired cybersecurity chief that was on duty while we had the most massive cyber hack of the government in the history of America. Um, You might know him from the man who said that this was the most secure election in the history of America. You might want to take that with a grain of salt. History of the world, I think, ever in the universe. The galaxy. (laughs) The galaxy, let's be honest. So they were giving, you know, examples and, and, and sharing information about different kinds of fraud, whether it was machine malfunctions, fast and loose with mail-in ballots, signature verification, um, secret ballots coming out of hiding, non-citizens voting, people voting twice. And, you know, the Democrats always like to say, well, there's no evidence. Well, you know, the room is empty. The Democrats leave after they go in for their um, photo op when they ask a question. And then once they're done, they leave. So it's not as if they were sitting around trying to get this information, which there's plenty of out there in, 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 well, not in the corporate media, but in uh, center-right media, it is. So we learned about those kinds of things, double voting, no signature verification. A lot, some logs were wiped, I think, in Michigan, so you can't even go back and look at what happened to these counting machines. Um, it was just a virtual cornucopia of information about voter fraud and voter irregularities. And now we're just kind of left with the question, which is what's going to happen? Right. What is going to happen? And I do think we should give props to Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin. Unlike a lot of other senators, our other favorite person, Lindsey Graham, who continued to get to the bottom of of things, Ron Johnson actually did produce a very thorough report into Hunter Biden's overseas, you know, foreign racket and is the only one who seems interested in stepping up as Senate Republican to expose this election fraud. There were some fireworks there, if you can talk in our last minute, between Ron Johnson and Gary Peters, who just helped steal his election in Michigan. Yeah, Gary Peters totally stole the election. From John James, a black man. From John James, a very promising candidate with a a very tremendous lead, and then suddenly it just disappeared in in the dark of night. But Johnson and Peters had a little spar because... Peters was in a snit, the Democrat, that they were having a hearing, 
And, you know, he was one of the people leading the charges against the four-year-long Russia collusion hoax that was inflicted upon this country. I do recommend uh, people who are listening take a look at, the, at some of the highlights of the hearing. It was quite, quite interesting. It was nice to see Ron Johnson in public confront uh, his colleague for spreading those lies. I wish we could see it more often. Liz, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Julie. Always a pleasure. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. My next guest is Michael Schellenberger. He is a best-selling author, an environmental activist, but a very level-headed one. I met Michael, first interviewed him about five years ago. We were both on the same side of agricultural biotechnology, also known as GMOs. Um, Michael is a strong advocate for things like nuclear power, and he's really an outlier in a way. He's extremely courageous. Uh, He has been an environmental activist his whole life, but he also... I guess I would steal Matt Ridley's description, rational optimist, to describe Michael. So he's going to join us here to talk about his book, his best-selling book that came out this year, Apocalypse Never, and also what we can expect from Team Biden and the climate change agenda. So welcome, Michael. Thanks for having me on, Julie. So you had your book come out this year, uh, and how how did that go? I mean, you got a ton of uh, of publicity on it. I know it was on the bestseller list, Apocalypse Never. Anybody who's interested in looking at the upside of what we're doing in terms of the environment and climate, why don't you tell us a little bit about what your book says? So Apocalypse Never, the subtitle is Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. That's the argument of the book. It's that environmental problems are real. Climate change is real. It's not the end of the world. There's actually more important environmental problems. There's actually more urgent environmental problems than climate change. I say that as somebody that's been an environmental activist, a climate activist for 20 years, an environmental activist for 30 years. So I go through the best available science on climate, rainforests, plastic straws, meat, all the things that your teenage daughter would like to know about the environment. And I I dedicate the book to my kids, including my daughter's 15 and I wrote it because I was concerned about the impact of all of the alarmism in the media, the exaggeration and the extremism um, of things that get said on climate change and energy and the ways in which it's really harmful to the mental health of everybody, but especially young people. And it also gets in the way of good technologies, like you mentioned, GMOs and nuclear. And it also is being used to deprive poor countries cheap food and energy, which is the basis of prosperity. And I think that's not right. And I wanted to write a book that that called it out. And you have traveled the world and you have seen firsthand what um, the most extreme climate activism has done to developing countries, kept them in the dark, kept them away from energy sources like coal, natural gas, um, shut down nuclear energy plants, not only around the world, but also, of course, in the United States. 
So you have seen this firsthand and you talk about it from that perspective. And it's so compelling, not just, of course, not from an economic perspective, but just from a human perspective, what this has done to countries. You know, here we are, the most developed country, wealthy, but this radical agenda is is really helping to keep hundreds of millions, if not a billion people um, in third world conditions because they have no access to the most basic, one of the most basic needs, which is energy. That's right. It is predatory. You know, it's um, after World War II, we created this thing called the World Bank that the United States mostly controlled. Other countries had similar banks, which basically were set up with pretty good intentions to help uh, poor countries develop roads, dams, farms that produced a lot of food rather than a little bit of food. And then in the 60s, um, a really anti-human, I, I, don't, there's no, I can't sugarcoat it, they were like, do you mean to say that they're anti-human? It's like, well, okay, I'm trying, I don't know, there's no other nice way to say it. Um, anti-humanistic, anti-humans, I mean, they, they basically think, thought humans were bad and there was too many of them and we need to particularly stop black and brown people from reproducing. And so that was a big part of the so-called environmental agenda in the 60s. And then when it became clear that actually as people got richer, they had fewer kids because they didn't want so many kids. They didn't need six kids. Um, they were happy with one or two or three, maybe. And so that didn't become a problem. So they switched to climate and climate became, you know, I mean, it's real. Um, it is all else being equal. We should not want to change the temperature of the planet because we've developed according to a particular temperature. But the temperatures are going up because of human prosperity and development and flourishing. And so you don't want to, like, stop those things unless you do. And that's what I get. That's the, sort of the punchline of it is that there's a there's always been an ulterior motive here, which is to basically reduce human prosperity. There's no other way to say it. I mean, it's really to reduce it. It's in both places, in poor countries to prevent them from getting it and in rich countries to basically give it up. And I do think there's a little bit of uh, correlation between what's happening, what's happened with climate being used to, as your point, to keep prosperity down to really lower the population. Um, and also some of the hysteria we've seen about COVID instead of mitigation strategies or instead of making sure that we can keep the economy going and keep people healthy and keep people thriving, it's, well, we're going to shut everything down sort of uh, mentality. Using that, you don't have to go very far to see the impact of of climate policy because you live in California. Um, so what has, and I believe you've lived there most of your adult life, what is that, what has the climate policies agenda done to the most extreme parts of it? What has that done to the beautiful state of California? Well, the most important thing that it's done and the thing that matters the most to people and to prosperity and actually to protect the environment is that we increased our electricity prices. We increased our energy prices six times more than the rest of the United States between 2011 and today. That was the goal of those policies was to make, make energy expensive. Um, it was achieved. Um, <laughs> You know, and um, at a price, at, at a very high price for working people in particular, you know, this is a state that actually taxed effectively its poorest people to subsidize its richest people to buy Teslas and put solar panels on their roofs. We have 
just highest levels of inequality, highest levels, um, highest poverty rate actually in the country when you account for the high cost of living. It's a, it's a cruel state in many ways, and it's a highly unjust state. And so all of the environmental stuff you see, all of the race stuff, all of this stuff is a sort of um, ways in which liberals and progressives try to make themselves innocent because they feel guilty, and rightly so, <laughs> for the mistreatment of of working people and poor people. And it's been pretty much a disaster in terms of producing our own energy. We've had uh, blackouts every year for the last two years. We almost had cascading failures because, you know, they really believe it. Sometimes people kind of go, hey, you know, Mike, like how far does this thing go up, man? Like does it, does it reach the head of the United Nations, you know? Right. And I'm always like, I'm always, I'm always like, yeah, the head of the United Nations is definitely in on it. But the thing is, he believes it. I mean, the conquistadores were very good Catholics, but they also wanted the gold. You know what I mean? In fact, they they were better Catholics because they wanted the gold so much. Sorry, Julie, I don't know if you're Catholic. You My husband. Be. Well, John. Um, <laughs> John, so, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, of course, they, they believe it, and it's a kind of fanaticism, but it's also just turbocharged with money. So, I mean, I know you wanted me to say something about the Biden climate energy team. I mean, these are people that take money from renewable energy companies. These are people who work for natural gas companies. Um, I've actually I, – I was in a pitch meeting. I heard uh, Jennifer Granholm sell her services to, to donors. Um, you know, it's Jennifer Granholm, who's the incoming, she is going to be yeah. the next, uh, what is Energy she? Secretary. Energy. Okay. Right. Wow. Yeah. Massively important position because you're also in charge of the, of the United States' uh, nuclear weapons stockpile. So, you know, um, it's kind of business as usual, you know, it's kind of like, um, you've got folks that are going to come in and, and try to direct money and, and, and regulations towards, uh, their friends, the people that support them, the make donations to the party. Um, you know, I think that I think that even if the Democrats win in Georgia, there's still he's still very limited in what Biden can do on climate. And I don't think he personally is as fanatical maybe as like an Al Gore is. Um, and he's going to want to stabilize the country first. So I don't think he's going to do anything super radical. Um, Honestly, I, I have to say there's so much grassroots resistance right now, Julie, to renewable energy projects around the country and around the world. It was even mentioned in the Times, which has been trying to ignore it for the last several weeks or months. Um, it's been in all the international papers. Germany's covering it, Australia, Britain, France, uh, Netherlands, There's also uh, Norway, Sweden. There's all sorts of resistance going on to big industrial solar and wind projects that I think these guys are, are I think there's much less there than they think there is. So, let's you know, I, I'm, about, I don't think it's going to be, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, let's talk about that in our next segment. Can you stay for one more and we can talk about that? Yeah, yeah. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show
So, Michael, you were talking about grassroots resistance to renewable energy here and around the world. I think for someone like me, that's that's sort of new. So can you talk about that a little bit? What specifically is happening there? I mean, with the, the, the main issue is that to build a big industrial solar panel or wind turbine project, you have to cover three to 400 times more land with your solar and wind collectors. That's because wind and solar, sunlight and wind are so energy dilute in contrast to fossil fuels and uranium. So it just requires a huge amount of land. I mean, there was even a human rights report that came out in like the summer, some of the exact month that documented people getting killed in Latin America, resisting these projects, there's resistance we now know in Kenya to these projects, including in parks that are famous for having these really rare migratory bird species. Kind of these, it's often and also in India. Big piece in one of the most important environmental magazines a couple of weeks ago, Manga Bay, about um, the threat to really special Indian. A bird, a migratory bird like a stork, a kind of an Indian stork that um, would have been decimated by wind turbines, resistance there. So it's happening, um, and they know it, and it creates investor anxiety and risk for those renewable guys. I mean, the big issue, as you know, Julie, with this administration that everyone should be concerned about is just the influence of China and BlackRock, which is a shadow bank. It's considered a shadow bank. That's a technical word for it, meaning that it doesn't have to abide by banking restrictions, um, has a huge amount of Chinese money, and they're really trying to basically promote a policy where we unbox solar panels made in China, where all of the value of those projects is in China, spread them, you know, mm-hmm. sprinkle them over old farmlands, um, and then call it a day. And, and meanwhile, you're killing off, they're killing off nuclear plants that employ a thousand people that produce domestic American energy. So they're using renewables to basically greenwash the destruction of our most important energy source. They're doing it with Chinese money. They're doing it with Chinese solar panels. It's a total nightmare. I mean, Republicans ought to be, you know, I wrote this book for, um, I'm still a Democrat, but I wrote this book for my Republican friends mm-hmm. um, to, to use it. You can just pick the copy up and bat your Democratic friends over the head with it and make <laughs> them read it. Um, but it contains all this stuff. I mean, Obama brought in, you know, the, the, you know, they, the stimulus was a complete, festival for green venture capitalists who took hundreds of millions of dollars. The whole thing could happen again. I um, certainly I've, I've reached out to very, I've been talking to some folks in Congress about it. I, I think that there needs to be a really close look at what these guys do, particularly around the financing around just doing a lot of solar. I mean, we just don't, it's not in America's interest to be heavily dependent on imported Chinese solar panels. It just does not make any sense. That is uh, so interesting, and especially now with a spotlight, I think mostly thanks to the president um, and confronting China finally and exposing all of I, I mean, I could say I, I wasn't aware of how involved uh, and pernicious China was in, in everything, and now you're talking about their own investment and how in an energy. Yes. And I mean, also- look at it, Julie. Um, look, they, 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 they behaved very um, dangerously around dominating drone manufacturing. I don't know how the United States ever gave up a drone industry where the Chinese the Chinese company involved was taking, this is all reported by the Times even, was taking um, in, intelligence basically gathered by drones in the United States to the Chinese government. 
5G, why would we possibly let Chinese companies control our internet networks? That does not make any sense to me. Um, nuclear energy, an area I know particularly well, now they're trying to do it with solar. I think we need to be worried about that. I mean, this is our greatest geopolitical rival. It's basically a totalitarian society. It is a society that has no respect for individual liberty or individual freedoms. These are scary guys. We don't want these guys controlling the American economy. We need to take charge of it. But I think the problem for Republicans is there's just been so much a kind of free market, anti-government spirit that you don't, there's not really, it doesn't give you much to, to operate on when you're confronting a government like China, that there has to be a role for the federal government in standing up to China. Some of these things can be done by free markets, but some of it the DOD just has to do. When you're talking to these lawmakers about this or people of influence, what is their response? So obviously you're always going to have the people pretend that we still operate in a free market society, which, of course, we don't. But are you getting attention to this just based on the political climate and the focus on China? Are are people starting to pay attention? I I mean, when I talk to you about it, and by the way, Democrats and Republicans, um, about the, for example, the very specific issue that I am actually alarmed about. Because, by the way, I think there's, a, you, I think I'm not anti-alarmist in general. I think there's some things I'm very alarmed about. Sure. I'm very alarmed about rising levels of anxiety and depression among teenagers. I'm very alarmed by the drug addiction crisis that we have in our country. Um, untreated mental illness. I think these things are actually things that we should be more alarmed about. Another thing we should be more alarmed about is that we have basically are allowing our longtime ally, ally Saudi Arabia, which is not, I'm not defending Saudi Arabia, okay? It's not a great country. It's, it happens to be the country that we balance against Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, we've allowed them to partner with China on enriching uranium, which is a process that, for people that don't know, if you enrich uranium to 5%, you can make nuclear power plants. 95%, you can make weapons. It's always been a technology that's been a high priority for all national security experts on all sides of the aisle to to want to be heavily involved in, if not control, in our allies, and we're letting China do that. And when I talk to when I've talked to members of Congress on both sides of this, they have said that they view that as very alarming, and it just kind of it is what it is. I mean, I just think it's like there's a lot of alarming stuff going on, and um, <laughs> you know, take a number. Um, I, I don't know what will happen on it. For me, if I were uh, if I were an ambitious congressperson, right or left, you know, I'd be um, shouting from rooftops that we should not be allowing American, you know, um, American allies in the Middle East to be um, switching sides to our greatest geopolitical rival. Um, I. As a truth teller, which you are, and this was has always been my uh, your appeal to me and so many people, is that you stick with your principles, but you also uncover the truth. Um, and in our last minute here, talk a little bit about the resistance, some of the censorship that you and your book and your thoughts uh, on, were subjected to this year uh, for simply exposing the facts and the truth uh, about what's going on with environmental energy policy? Well, I mean, first, I was totally thrilled with the response. Obviously disappointed that the left, I'm happier when they attack it, disappointed when it got ignored by basically the major mainstream media. I mean, that was covered in the Wall Street Journal, which was great. It's a really nice review in the journal, but ignored by the Times. But it's never fun when people are trying to destroy your career. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? So, well, but you get used to it, I guess. I appreciate all of your work. You have taught me so much, and I really urge people who are listening, if you want to learn a lot about what's going on, not just here in the world, from a brave warrior, a super smart guy, and a great guy, cool guy, uh, Michael Schellenberger, please pick up his book, makes a great Christmas gift. So, Michael, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Julie. Because it's the heat of the moment. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Joining me next is Representative Andy Biggs. He is a congressman from Arizona, and I first interviewed Representative Biggs, I think right after he was elected, and talking about scientific issues. He was a member of the House Science Committee, but he has really become an outspoken, one of the few uh, congressmen who has, from the beginning, been an opponent of these shutdowns and lockdowns. Um, and also a variety of issues. He has been critical of Drs. Fauci and Burks. Um, Representative Biggs is a strong ally of the president as well, but also could see how he was being not not served in best interest of the president or really the country. So we have a couple issues to talk about. Representative Biggs, welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Julie. Good to be with you. Let's talk a little bit what's happening in your home state of Arizona related to lockdowns and shutdowns. We have the election uh, problems there, but um, it also seems like these Republican governors are buying into the pseudoscience about masks and social distancing and really harming um, their own states in the process. And you've been such an outspoken, uh, you know, ally on our side, the, the free side, uh, what's happening? What can we expect to change after 2021, if anything? Well, I, the, what makes me nervous is that uh, at the federal level, they want to federalize mask mandates. They're, they're talking vaccine mandates, and they're talking about national lockdowns. The, all those things never would have happened under President Trump, which is one reason I thought he did such a, a good job at this. But in my own home state, um, they're talking about reinstituting lockdowns, um, and you know this. Uh, the Fauci is apparently featured in the Grinch who stole Christmas. He doesn't want you to get together. Uh, I mean, just some of this stuff is is amazing to me, uh, where you have compliance, uh, almost a hundred percent compliance in some places with masks. And they're having these renewed surges in positive uh, detection of coronavirus cases. And, and and when you think about that, if if the mask was the be all end all, then that would that that should not be happening. It's inconsistent with um, their their arguments. That when I say are there, I'm talking about public health um, or orthodoxy. So. Um, you know, in Arizona, they're talking about uh, mask mandates. The governor uh, was very upset with me for asking him the direct question: Are you going to try to impose vaccine mandates mm-hmm. in the state? So, why are more Republicans not speaking out? Um, you are one of the few. I see a few congressmen once in a while might tweet about it, 
But when you have Republican governors like your governor or Mike DeWine in Ohio or others, a handful on the Northeast, we're supposed to be the party of freedom, of risk, of um, personal liberty. It's just amazing to me to see top Republican leadership continue to perpetuate uh, this coronavirus hysteria. What are Republicans afraid of? Why aren't more people taking your lead? For I think for a couple of reasons, Julie. I think, first of all, I think some of my colleagues are actually themselves, they've bought into the rhetoric and they're personally afraid mm-hmm. uh, of getting sick or, or dying with the virus. Uh, the second thing is, um, I think I think there's a significant number of, this is a, a, a kind of a nonpartisan issue. I think there's a lot more people on the Republican side that want the freedom than the, than the other side. But but you actually have a lot of Republicans that also have bought into this and, and genuinely fear. And then the, you have the generational issue. But it, but it all comes down to one thing. It's fear. And if you're a free people, uh, you know, the reason that free free people need to have be good and moral and, you know, do their best to, 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 to love their neighbor, etc., is because that get, when that goes out the door, it's impossible to have freedom. And you, when you said it really well, freedom means that I assess the risk of the choices I'm making and I accept the consequences of those choices. This notion that if you wear a mask or get this vaccine, my, my favorite is that now, now you get the vaccine, but you're still going to have to wear a mask <laughs> because, you know, the, the vaccine apparently only works with a mask. Uh, the smart it's a smart uh, vaccine because uh, we we're going to impose curfews from 10 p.m. to to six in the morning. So apparently it rests at night. It the, takes the, a that, nap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the COVID takes a nap. We they my guys these these men and women I don't understand fully. Um, they want to put up a fight, uh, but they have also seen the the garbage I've taken for putting up. The- and I think some of them are like, wow, we don't, we can live without that. I think that is very true, and that's why I really commend you for for speaking up and standing strong. And so, in the next segment, I'd like to talk about what is going to happen with Joe Biden and coronavirus hysteria. Also, um, how social distancing and mass gatherings that will change again once we have more uh, caravans uh, south of the border. The Dan Proft Show. So, Representative Biggs, unfortunately, you know, there was the joke uh, during the campaign that once Joe Biden was elected, coronavirus would go away. Not only is that not true, it's going to get much worse. His first 100 days are all going to be about masks and keeping schools closed and paying off his his uh, constituencies like the teachers union. Um, what do you see happening for 2021? I don't see any major changes happening in our favor. Right. In fact, I, I, I literally this morning was telling my staff, you know, uh, I'm glad to see 2020 go, but 2021 will be worse. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason it'll be worse is because Biden, people who get power think they have power. Um, they're going to almost always abuse it, and and Biden's going to abuse this power. The Democrats are going to abuse this power. They're going to impose mask mandates or try to. They're going to try to impose vaccine mandates. They're going to try to impose lockdowns. They're going to keep kids out of school. 
they don't care about the science or the or the greater ramifications, whether it be to your economy, mental health. Uh, they don't care that you, you. We have a generation now that is losing a full year mm-hmm. of schooling and all of the developmental uh, progress that can happen in a year. They're going to fall way behind. It's detrimental to emotionally. Uh, you know, and the suicide has gone. Uh, rates have gone up. You've got. Uh, depression has gone up in adolescents and in seniors in particular. I'm I'm just fearful that a Biden uh, heavy hand on the on the lever of government is going to be really disastrous for America. I agree. I hate to say that. I really thought by now, regardless of who won, we would start unwinding this. But I think the punishment is going to continue. Um, the using this as leverage as kind of ransom until the Democrats get exactly all the money that they want, including huge bailouts for bankrupt states. This is so, you know, if you have kids, it's just getting harder and harder to to try to keep them cheered up about what's happening. And not to mention our poor senior citizens who are who are dying of failure to thrive. Uh, being listed on death certificates in nursing homes long term, even the, the good ones. Um, it, it's it's just you can't believe that this is America. But, you know, Representative Biggs, there are certain cert- situations where social distancing and masking don't apply. We saw that over the summer with Black Lives Matter protests. Um, and I assume we're going to see that now with the new incursion of immigrants, illegal immigrants coming from south of the border. What What's going on there? Well, anytime you've got a group of people that the left loves, um, they don't have to. Uh, they don't have to worry about getting sick. Apparently, mm-hmm. so what, what's happening across the border is you're seeing this massive surge again. So, so uh, up set, up to seventy thousand apprehensions in November, a hundred thousand in December. You've got one caravan that's coming up now. You've got several more forming. You've got the cartels that are advertising again. You've got the the do-gooder NGOs that think they're helping, but they're really causing uh, human trafficking. They're advertising again. We've got uh, we've got a, a cartel war on our border, um, literally uh, where they're killing. I, I just got off with a border agent, border patrol agent. They killed three people uh, two days ago, two or three days ago, in this one small town because there's a uh, they're called plazas. The two different cartels are trying to gain control of the plaza, which controls the border crossing. So they're fighting each other. These are the kind of people that if they come across our border, guess what? We're not even going to – if they don't have an American record, criminal record, um, we can't check with Mexico, and they're going to be – those violent folks are going to be let in the U.S. So we're looking at a surge, quite frankly, Julie, that's probably going to match or exceed the the, uh, spring surge of two years ago because of the announced Biden policies. And it's so also where have we saw Senate Republicans try to thwart, successfully thwart some of uh, President Trump's immigration policies. His emergency order uh, was overturned. You had senators who were objecting to the use of the word caravan. What is going to how are Republicans? I assume that they're going to play ball with the Biden administration. We've already heard talk about uh, working on uh, amnesty what can we expect from them, if anything? Well, yeah, you already have a gang of six in the U.S. Senate that are um, trying to to work with uh, uh, with the, a potential Biden administration 
to uh, provide amnesty, support sanctuary cities, stop building a wall, turn the border patrol instead of a border security agency into a uh, search and rescue agency. They're going to emasculate ICE. Um, and all those things serve to provide enticement. And let's just be honest, Julie, if you're bringing in these people, you've got, you've got business folks that like to do it. They, they, they're content with the human trafficking aspect of it because everybody crossing the border has a cart is is paying the cartels. They're they're content with that human trafficking and putting these people in basically indentured servitude because they want the low wage labor. They want to bring them here, and and really it is um, you're going to see a, a border that's absolutely porous, and um, that's what you're going to see over the next two years. And that's one. This don't ever forget. I, I, I remind people all the time. Don't forget that in 2016, one of the things President Trump that set him apart was he said, "This is a problem, and we're going to solve it by building a fence and having other rational uh, programs." But you, you, all these programs are, are starting to come uh, uh, together uh, already in the Senate in a bipartisan fashion because a lot mm-hmm. of those people want uh, basically open borders. Well, maybe that's one way to get the restaurants open. I hate to say it. (laughs) Real quick in our last minute, can you talk about um, your letter to the president about the omnibus spending bill? I mean, we are just, we are spending so much more money than we have and keeping the economy locked down at the same time. This is just going to lead to a huge crash. What's happening there? We haven't even seen it yet. We were just hearing bits and, uh, and drips and drabbles coming out. Uh, and we've asked myself and a number of others have asked the president to veto this bill because it looks a lot like 2018, where nobody will have a chance to read these three to five thousand page bill uh, from the time they give you the, the the document to the time they tell you to vote. Nobody, including a team of ten in my office, that will will be going over this thing will be able to actually read the bill. Representative Biggs, you are one of the most courageous members of Congress, the most hardworking. I mean, I follow you on Twitter. You're always everywhere. You know your stuff. Um, you're speaking out when nobody else would, will. You know, I wish we had 230 more of you on Capitol Hill. So thank you so much for joining us today and keep up the good work and the good fight. Thank you, Julie. Thank you very much. Appreciate the kind words and have a Merry Christmas. You too. Thank you. Show.com. So since it's Friday, TGIF, Christmas is a week away. Hopefully you are going to be busy sharing some holiday cheer with your friends or family, not socially distancing, not wearing your mask, uh, actually enjoying life in the holidays. I would like to close out with talking about one of my favorite subjects, which is never Trump. Uh, Representative Biggs touched about this a little bit. These are Republicans or alleged Republicans who pretend that they are conservative and they've used that as a cudgel against the president. I have written a book this year. It was published this year called Disloyal Opposition, How the Never Trump Right Tried and Failed to Take Down the President. So 
never Trumpers. You were thinking people like Bill Kristol, the Lincoln Project, anyone you see on cable news who pretends that they're Republican conservatives but beats up the president. So now what happens to never Trump? They are splintering, according to a new article in Politico, because once you they didn't really slay the tiger because they didn't flip Republicans against Trump. They think that they did, but there's no evidence to show it. So now they're trying to figure out what to do next. A few of them, Steve Schmidt, who is one of the lowlifes at the Lincoln Project, uh, officially switched parties to Democrat this week. So did Jennifer Horn, another never Trumper associated with the Lincoln Project. So they're trying to figure out how to keep their coalition together. And the idea, which is funny, is now to target Republicans um, still going after after President Trump. So in this political political argument, uh, uh, excuse me, political political article, you have Bill Kristol, who was a popular neoconservative leader, former editor, founder of the Weekly Standard that went out of business two years ago thanks to their anti-Trumpism. They're offering to help Joe Biden and the Democrats. And what they're saying is if Biden tries to pass an immigration bill, for instance, they could help by touting provisions popular with Republicans and moderates. It could be ads. It could be private meetings. It could be talking to business leaders, members of Congress, Bill Kristol says. Never Trumpers can help the Biden administration govern successfully. Now, what's interesting, too, is to see the Biden people and Democrats reject this out of hand and not want anything to do with the Never Trumpers. Now, keep in mind, these people have collected tens of millions of dollars from left-wing donors, from Democratic activists, to try to take down the president, not only the president, but Republican senators who support him. They've targeted even just regular Trump voters, demeaned them, degraded them. So now the gravy train is going to be ending soon. One of the very few upsides, um, if indeed it comes to that President Trump has lost the election, which it does look now that our options are running low, if not out, that never Trumpers will once again be cast out to political no man's land. Um, so that's that's one cheery thought we can all share on Friday night. So thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, thank you to Dan Prof for inviting me to fill in. I will be back on Monday where we will have some really interesting guests, including Carter Page, the target of the uh, FISA application. We will have uh, political strategist Ned Ryan and some other great guests. So hope you will tune in. Have a great weekend. This is the Dan Proft Show.